This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. There are now three candidates for the Ontario Conservative leadership race. Carolyn Mulroney, yes, a daughter of Brian, has announced she is putting her name in the ring, as well as Doug Ford uh, and Christine Elliott. Here's uh, what... Uh, well, I guess we should play. We, we haven't got a clip from uh, Elliot, uh, but here's a couple from uh, Doug Ford. Let's start with him. And if the prime minister wants to try to make us, I'll tell the prime minister, well, just the same way his father said it, just watch me. Just watch me. And uh, Carolyn Mul- Mulrooney. We need to build the kind of Ontario that strives to give all of our children the opportunities they deserve. To do that, we need a government that actually cares about us, that focuses on affordability, economic growth, and opportunity. I'm the only candidate who can bring that change. Something different, forward-looking, and positive. Something new. All right, there you have it. Uh, and Richard Brennan is with us, a retired journalist with the Toronto Star, covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for years. He is with us now. Richard, thank you for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Good afternoon, Scott. Your thoughts as this is unfolding to date? Well, I think that um, uh, Doug Ford, what uh, his approach so far is, is highly predictable, and uh, he will go after Caroline uh, Mulroney for living in the United States for 20 years, just as they went after uh, Michael Ignatieff when he ran federally for the Liberals. And, uh, you know, what the... I think what uh, certainly Caroline represents is a new generation, and that's a good thing. But her her lack of political acumen, if you will, uh, is really going to hurt her. I think, and I think also I'm predicting not well. It's a good possibility anyway that with Christine Elliott in the race, that Doug will actually bow out at some point. Really? What makes you think that? Well, they were very good friends. Uh, uh, the, mm-hmm. you know, of the uh, Rob and and Doug, and I just think that, you know, she starts to look like she's getting any kind of momentum at all. I think he just might uh, say, you know, because we're close friends, uh, that he will just uh, pull out because it's not, you know, it's not uh, beyond him to pull out of uh, races. We've seen him do it several times, so. Do you think he's more interested in the mayoral race in Toronto? Oh no, he's given up on that because yeah. that, that's why he's running. That's why he's running provincially because he knows he can't knock off uh, John Tory. Right. Uh, how does someone like a Caroline Mulroney handle someone who uh, it can be as rough and tumble as, as Doug Ford? Well, I think the way to to handle him is you know it just be yourself and let him you know flame out. Let let him. You know his his bluster, and and not uh, not not bite on it, you know not get engaged with it, because that's I mean he's he's at his best when you when you 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 fight back and and play play his game, and I certainly if I was wearing I I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't entertain it, and I think if she, if she's smart she won't. Uh, it was it was interesting that, that Rod Phillips uh, bowed out again. He bring, he would bring a new generational face to the party as well. Uh, I, just, I think he's he's kind of thrown his lot in behind Caroline now. 
So uh, many, you know, especially after the passing of Rob Ford, uh, thought that, that that may have been it from the Fords, especially with Doug in the leadership of, or, or sort of the mayoral uh, candidacy with mayor uh, running for Toronto and such. Um, does Doug Ford have the appeal that Rob did? No. In short, no, he doesn't. He he had, uh, I mean, he still has... What some... does he have? What does he have here that's that's generating interest? Well, just the Ford name at this point. But I don't, he doesn't have that. People, rightly or wrongly, loved Rob because he was kind of this lovable goof. But Doug's not like that at all. He's more calculating and, 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 and he's a... He's more of a bully, certainly, than Rob ever was. And I, I think, in the end, those qualities will, will be his undoing. Uh, we heard uh, Doug Ford on 640 in Toronto last week, and he just kept hammering away about the taxpayer. Nobody's defending the taxpayer. Uh, nobody's running this past the taxpayer before these things are, are, are decided on. And just it just kept driving that point home. And I'm, I'm sitting there listening to this, and I'm thinking... Man, this is going to resonate with people, and, and even for other leaders to perhaps, you know, maybe you don't want the same approach that that Doug Ford has, but but why are people not centering on what he's identifying with? Like clearly, people are are identifying with him. The the oh, and the, and the, the, the end, cachet to that for, for sure. Because you know, people... it's sort of like shaking up, you know, shaking up the nest, and and yep. you know, anybody but but the establishment, so to speak. But this, but. He is the establishment. That's the funny part of it. You know, he keeps calling everybody else. At the end of the day, Richard, you can't deny that people are extremely frustrated with politics in Canada, just the way oh, they were no in the United States. I mean, Donald Trump wasn't elected because of his policy. Donald Trump was elected because they wanted anybody but the but the others. And and you know, he was there. He, he was put in there to distract and disrupt, and that's what he's done. I think. We're, do you not think that we're, we could see the same thing in Canada? Just because people have had it with government that just doesn't listen well, to them people anymore? People have had it with government, but when you ask them to enunciate, you know, to give you details, I find a lot of people can't. It's just like this general hatred or dislike, if you will, of the, of the political Well, they're not making world. it. They're not making up, Richard. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think they're told how to feel. I mean, if people are unhappy with the establishment, they're unhappy with the establishment. But Why? Now, well, because they I, feel I mean, they can't you, get you, ahead, you they feel that they're being generalized. Well, well, here I'll tell you right now: they feel they can't get ahead. They feel that they're overtaxed. They feel that their money's being wasted. They feel that they're scandals. I mean, my goodness, look at the last fifteen years of this government. That's what they'll look into. Uh, look at their hydro rates, their electricity rates. They feel that they're not being listened to, and, and uh, you know, uh, because they, they they can't stand up and articulate it the way perhaps a professional politician can. It doesn't mean they're not upset about it. Well, I'm not saying they're not upset, but. Ask them why. I mean, and, and I'm not saying, <clears throat> maybe if we drill down a little further. I guess, what answer would you be looking for there, Richard? Well, what, it, what is it about the you know, government in general that you don't like? Is it is that they're not listening? Is it because they're, you know, they're squandering your tax dollars? You know, I think that's where you have to be more specific. If you've got a complaint, if I've got a complaint against you, Scott, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to tell you exactly what what's, I think is wrong with you. Or you, you would do the same with me. But just to come in and say generally that, you know, everything's screwed up and it's it's not worth my while to vote or whatever, 
Oh, I, I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be worth a lot of people's while to vote. I think we're going to get a high voter turnout with this. And, and again, you know, I, I go back to raising high electricity rates, uh, disgruntled education system, the thing that's going on right now between doctors and nurses and healthcare. I mean, I think it, 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 they're tired of the mismanagement. Well, I think it's a bit of all of the, the above. But the point is that who's? <coughs> pardon me, sir. <coughs> pardon me. You've got to find out who's going to bring something legitimately viable to the table mm-hmm. and not just, you know, this, you know, this, you know, this dogma about, you know, the gravy train and all that. Who do you think stands the best chance of getting elected between these three? That's a good question. I think, uh, I don't know, Christine might... She might, in some ways, be be uh, Kathleen Wynne's worst nightmare. Only because she has, the, you know, the political background, and and she's just a nice. <coughs> pardon me, Jeez, I got something in my throat here. She's she's got the ability to, to kind of transcend. I think from from having covered her. The, the kind of noise that's going in the background just generally about politics. Mm-hmm. Do, uh, what about the short sp- uh, period of time between now and the election? Will Ontarians get an accurate uh, representation, an accurate display of what these candidates are all about? Well, what's going for, what's certainly going for them right now is... Uh, Anybody but win. Yeah. And maybe it's maybe it's a good thing that you know. And, and I'm thinking of their political positioning. Maybe it's a good thing that people don't get a good read on them. If you if you have a the more time you have, <laughs> yeah, the more chances you have you're exactly. not going to like them. <laughs> That's just, a good point. That's a good point. Uh, do you think this? Uh, do you think this is it for the leadership? Like the, it'll be between these three, and then that's it. Obviously, I don't know. I think there's somebody else out there that's going to throw their hat in the ring. Well, who that may be, but I don't. I don't think this is going to be it. Do you think this is the NDP's best chance? Uh, I know a lot of my colleagues are floating up, but I don't buy it. How come? I, I just think the the NDP are uh, their own problems. Uh, you know, as much as I like Andrea, and I do, her her best before date's gone. Hmm. How do you explain her numbers being so popular, being so uh, high on an individual basis, admired as, as, as one of the best leaders, but the party nothing? Well, that happens every election. Hmm. <laughs> you know, it... it their numbers go up prior to prior to election, and you know, people say that you know Andrew's a nice person. You know, maybe we should give these guys a chance, and then it all implodes. And and this is several times now. How do you think Ontarians are, will react to this election? Uh, do you think we will see uh, you know populist movements growing here? They say that it's it's unlikely. Some say it's possible. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, we're always about ten years behind the. Uh, United States. Hmm. So it it could you know it's a it's a complete possibility. Will we copy them or learn from them? Both, I think. 
we may we may not go the extreme of Trump, but we may look for somebody that kind of has that populist sense, uh, such as the um, Brad Wall in Saskatchewan. Hmm. Richard Brennan has been with us, retired journalist with the Toronto Star, covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for years. Richard, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Sorry for the coughing. Oh, (laughs) hey, don't you worry about that. It's going around, that's for sure. All right, thank you very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Costco, do you go? I refuse to go in, and it's nothing about the store. It's just I hate shopping. So if you're somebody who hates shopping... I don't know. I, I, I think um, I think Costco would be heroin for you. I, I, I just I, I it's just I don't know. It's just a whole different game there. People are, are it's just a different attitude there. And it's big and it's long and the it's there's millions of people. The the cars the parking lots are jammed. And you know, how come these guys are succeeding when other bricks and mortar stores per you know uh, are, are seeing sales decline? And where's the online aspect of all of this? Are the millennials lining up to purchase their Costco membership? To talk about all of this, Ian Lee is with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's on the line with us now. Ian, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. So why is Costco working in an online world? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I want to, uh, I suppose, challenge you, um, uh, at least challenge the underlying assumption in your statement. Yes, Costco has been very successful. Let's fully acknowledge that. And my disclosure, I do not have any financial relationship to any firm anywhere in the grocery industry, retailing or firm or, or union or anything. I don't consult to any of these organizations. And I am a Costco card a member uh, of Costco. Uh, having said all that I just said, what I really want to get out there is I am much more negative uh, or pessimistic about Costco's future going forward mm. as opposed to the past because of two separate uh, uh, issues. Uh, one is the entry by Amazon.com in, in buying up Whole Foods, and I do believe that Amazon is one of the two most formidable retailers in the world, uh, along with uh, Walmart. Uh, and then the second problem is the business model of Costco. And I've already said I'm, a, uh, I'm, I'm not an angry customer of Costco. I go there from time to time, although I go less and less. I should also say, Ian, that I would probably have that attitude within any store. Uh, yeah, well, I specifically, <laughs> though, I go less and less to Costco for a reason. My two children have grown up and left home, so yeah. my wife and I. There you so go. That brings me to the problem with their business model. I went and looked up very quickly, just before coming, uh, coming to talk to you, uh, on the household formation is the technical buzzword. Uh, these aren't theories. These aren't opinions. This is hard, hard data from census, U.S. Census Bureau and StatsCan. And it should be no surprise to any of your listeners that the average size of household has been falling like a stone for the last 40, 50 years. If you go back even as late as the 60s, big households were normal. I mean, that was the baby boom generation, right? And lots of people in the house, four, five, six. Well, the number of what StatsCan and U.S. Census Bureau calls big households, more than five in the household, uh, has plummeted from over half of the population to under 10% in the last 50 years, since the 60s until now. Who goes to Costco? 
somebody who needs a lot of stuff because mm. there's a lot of people in the house. If you are a millennial living by yourself or at most with one other person, you know, to be very blunt, I don't think Costco makes sense because they force you to not only buy a membership, which is one problem, but they also force you to buy in bulk. Yeah. Well, what if you don't want to buy 10 units of, I don't know, salmon steak or 10 units of uh, 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 things of toilet paper that have 20 or 30 rolls in each package? And you've got, I'm exaggerating a little bit to make my point. The point is, is it's not, it's geared to people, families with people, lots of people in the household. It's not a model geared to the single person. Is it a suburban thing? I think it's very much a suburban yeah. thing, because that's where the families are, right? Yeah. I mean, the millennials have gone to the downtown, and there's very good data on that, by the way, also from StatsCan. They love the downtown, lots of things to do. That's where all the other young people are. And the burbs are where you go when you have uh, children and have families. And Costco, as you'll note, as we all know, is located in the family, in the, excuse me, in the suburbs. Yeah. I mean, in Ottawa, I can tell you, they're way out in the suburbs. They're not even close to the downtown. And so I, I'm not ch uh, uh, challenging Costco itself. I'm not saying they're the bad people. They're very sharp managers there. They had a great business strategy that's worked for the last 35 years. But I think that going forward, as we go forward over the next 5, 10, 15 years, Costco is going to run into a lot of trouble. In fact, their same-store sales, which is a famous metric in retailing, which is the average sales per store, um, has, has gone flatline for them. And their operating profit is essentially equal to the membership fees. They say that their traffic is up, though, Ian. Well, they're tra in aggregate, this is where you can you yeah. know, play with numbers. The aggregate numbers are up, and this is how any, or not any, but many retailers can play games uh, because, well, the population grows every year in Canada and the United States. Why? Because we are very generous immigration policies. And so Canada, for example, every three years grows the size of, we add one new Ottawa to Canada. A million people every three years, we, we grow. And so, of course, year by year by year, sales in absolute terms are up. That's why we have to normalize the data, which means make it comparable. And one of those metrics is to look at same-store sales. And their same-store sales is flat. Uh, they are projecting growth and want to build more bricks-and-mortar stores. Do you think that's a good idea? I'm not suggesting. I just did a presentation here in Ottawa to the Urban Something Institute and uh, urban planners and people interested about where cities are going and, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so I did, because uh, I'm an empirical guy, so I dug up just tons and tons of stats from StatsCan, U.S. Census Bureau, and elsewhere on bricks-and-mortar versus online. And I'm mentioning this to you, Scott, because the data is very clear. Yes, e-commerce is growing in leaps and bounds. But when you break it down, and you and I have talked about this before, when you break it down by category or sector, if you want to call it that, in other words, electronics versus groceries versus clothing, uh, you know, versus jewelry, et cetera, et cetera, the trend is not uniform. That is to say, electronic e-commerce sales of computers and cameras is skyrocketing. Whereas when I looked at the data, this is data from Europe, from China, from Canada, from the U.S., and in every country that I had the data for, the category that is most immune to e-commerce is, guess what, groceries. It is growing very, very small, slowly and only very small penetration compared to the others. No, I'm arguing something different. I'm arguing that 
Costco is going to have to change their model, their business model, which is A, membership-based, and B, you have to buy in bulk if they want to attract the fastest-growing segment, which is small house, millennial small households. So they're going to have to change that requirement that you come in, I'm being a little bit flippant here, okay, that you come in with a great big truck and load it up with your groceries if you want to attract millennials. You're going to have to uh, allow someone to come in there with a Fit, a Honda Fit, a little tiny car, Mm. and uh, or or something even smaller than that, maybe a smart car, and maybe put just two bags in if they want to uh, penetrate and attract the millennial community because they're not those households, those big households, are no are, are are sinking like a stone. Uh, what about the idea? And you know, I, I'm reading from uh, from the interview here from their informations, and they're they're saying that millennials are in and that they are getting involved. And then, in what they're banking on is, you know, they get married and start having kids that they'll they'll come back. They said they don't, or that they'll come back and buy more. They say they're not purchasing as much as baby boomers right. do, and in the quantities, probably because their apartments are one quarter the size. Exactly. Um, but they, they feel that as they do expand, that they will use this. Do you think they can tap into this without doing some greater uh, form I'm, of online presence, I'm like an skeptical. Amazon? I'm skeptical, Scott. And again, it's not because I have any personal anything about them. I, as I said, I think they're, they've been brilliant for the past 35 years, but I'm really driven by numbers. I really am. And so you look at several metrics. The birth rate. Okay, well, the birth rate is going down like a stone in Canada. That's one point. You look at the average size of the physical square footage of the apartment of millennials. They're way, way smaller than they are for boomers. You know, and then you look at the family formation. It's way down. Then you look at the average size of household. It's way down. It's, and so all of these numbers suggest the opposite of what the Costco marketing people are saying, uh, and the numbers also contradict, I think, their strategy. Now, I'm not saying that there's never, there's not going to be families in the future. Of course there are. But I think that Costco's business model is limited to the, let's call it the families in the suburbs market. I cannot see them uh, attracting millennials in downtown Ottawa or downtown Toronto or Hamilton or Calgary uh, because I mean, the margins for the grocery industry is, are famously very low, very low, and, and the cost of, of uh, real estate to rent in the downtown of any major American or Canadian city is very expensive, which is one of the reasons why these big box stores and grocery stores locate out in the burbs. It's not an accident. It's, it's very rational that they're out there beside you know, a major four-lane highway out in the burbs because the land is just vastly cheaper per square foot. The costs, the rail costs are vastly cheaper than in downtown Toronto or downtown Hamilton or downtown Vancouver. So, so Ian, how, logic. how does, how does, Sear, how does um, Costco s- stop from becoming a Sears? How do they not go through the same so thing? That's, uh, well, I think that, what, let me put it this way. If they don't change their model, I think that they, they've maxed out. I, don't th- I can't see them growing proportionately larger. They can quibble with me and say, look, our absolute sales are up. Well, that's only because every year that goes by, every three years, there's another million people. But, but if, are, are we saying can their market share, their share of the market continue to grow? I am profoundly skeptical. So if they, the, the, that to me suggests that they're going to have to change their business model. Now, maybe they'll change the business model in the following intriguing manner uh, to respond to to the threat of uh, Amazon, and they could say, well, we'll keep our model of in the stores where you have to go in and buy in bulk, in essence, 
but we will change that for online grocery shopping where you can buy individual units. So instead of buying, you know, five units of uh, <laughs> uh, soap for your dishwasher or five bags or five boxes of the stuff, uh, we'll let you buy a single box of it. I mean, that's one way they could get around getting uh, relaxing the bulk buying uh, requirement because I think that is a huge incentive, uh, disincentive for millennials to even start going there in the first place. You bring up a valid point too, Ian, about how uh, the older generation, especially if they grew up uh, during wartime or their parents did, uh, when they get a deal, they buy lots of it. Whereas yeah. millennials, they're not collectors. They get their no, music and such from a cloud. They don't collect record, yeah. uh, you know, records in in milk cartons or any of that, or milk cases or any of that sort of stuff. So again, are they even interested in the concept when they can get what they need within days online? Well, that's another very, very important point. I made this, uh, it was one of my secondary arguments in this presentation I did a couple of weeks ago uh, to downtown city planners and so forth. And I said, you know, I, uh, I said my, and now what I'm about to say is based on conjecture. I don't have hard data, but my uh, my conjecture or my theory uh, is, is that millennials are buying a lot less stuff yeah. than my generation did. Mm-hmm. We bought lots of stuff and filled up our houses with stuff. And I mean by stuff, physical stuff. And see, that only begs the question, well, what are the millennials doing? They're buying intangibles. Mm-hmm. They're buying, they're streaming a service over their iPhone. Well, that's not a stuff. That's a, streaming something on Netflix or uh, from a music site is an intangible service. They're traveling more. Mm-hmm. That's a service. So they're buying more services which are intangible, which are not physical stuff. And, of course, Costco's not in the services business. They're in the selling physical stuff business. What about membership? Uh, is it worth it for people to pay, I don't know, I guess it's 30 bucks or whatever it is now to join? Uh, is that worth it for people? To, is, that, is that the selling feature here? I, I, you just asked, I think, uh, probably the most strategic question of all. I just renewed my membership about two weeks ago, and I'm telling you, my wife and I sat there. When we got to the store, we realized our membership card had expired. And we sat there for 15, 20 minutes debating with each other, hmm. and we're, believe me, we're, not, we're comfortable, okay? Our kids have left home, and, and we're, I mean, the 60 bucks is neither here nor there, okay? And we just said, like, what, what's the value? Why are we buying this when we hardly ever go there anymore? And how and, much do you have to save to recoup the 60 bucks? Exactly. And so I think that in the next few years, I'm going, willing to go out on a limb and predict that I think the first thing that will get changed with Costco is the, is the, uh, the, the membership fee. Um, I, I, they may waive it for online people, or they may cut it and reduce it. The, I think you'll see modifications to it, um, even before the modifications to the big bulk, to the bulk purchase. I mean, with the bulk purchase, what they're trying to do is get economies of scale. And they're trying to get savings by, you know, the whole idea is the more you sell, the, the less it costs per unit of whatever you're selling, right? That, that's what economies of scale are. And so when you make someone buy five or ten units of the product instead of one unit, well, you can, you can drive down your cost quite quickly. And that's been the core and the key to Costco's model, along with locating out in the burbs where land and costs are cheaper. But I think that they're going to have to change that model, as I said, the, both the, the membership uh, because that's a turnoff to a lot of people, including me. It's not, again, that I couldn't afford 60 bucks. I mean, my goodness me, that's like uh, three bottles or two bottles of wine, you know? 
um, or four bottles, depending on how much you're paying per bottle. Even $15 a bottle of wine, that's four bottles of wine, big deal. But it was the fact that why am I spending this if I'm not getting any value from mm. it? And like you said, you know, unless you're the shopper with a few kids and going in there exactly. once or twice a month, is, are you really going to save 60 bucks in the long run? Uh, what about Sam's Club, which was the same sort of thing but for Walmart? And, and there's that's cool. gone under and hasn't done well. Why yeah. Why is this one doing well? Why didn't that one? Because Walmart's well, huge. Uh, I think that the, the Sam's Club is really uh, a sign of the, it's the canary in the gold mine. And I mean by that really? that uh, that's a signal from the marketplace. The market is... Speaking, it may not be shouting yet, but it's certainly whispering in a loud voice. Uh, that model is dying, and again, it comes back. When I looked at the household formation in the U.S. Census Bureau and StatsKings, they ca- calculate this separately. I mean, the numbers are staggering. I mean, if you go back, you don't have to go back a thousand years ago. How about going back to 1960? You know, the average household was over five, and now it's down to two and a half. I mean, the average household has fallen by more than 50% in the last 40, 50 years. And, and that, to me, is uh, that, that statistic that I'm quoting you shouts at the business model. At, and that's why I think Sam's Club went down and uh, why they finally closed it. They did not see growth there whatsoever. And Walmart is very hard-nosed, a bunch of hard-nosed business people. And they said, you know, there's no future in that market, that segment, and so we're going to close it. They see more of a future in online, and I'm skeptical. But we have to remember, Costco and Walmart don't just sell groceries. And I've never argued that there's no market for uh, online for electronics or clothing or anything like that. It's the grocery segment that is where the numbers are very, very small. Uh, and, I, and I predict that groceries, uh, online grocery shopping is never going to take off because large numbers like to go in and bend over and smell the, the food. Some of us, and I'm guilty of that, I like to squeeze the Charmin, as the old commercial mm. went. I like to squeeze the orange. I know I'm not supposed to, but, you know, we like to look at the food. And with grocery shopping, you don't have, it's very tactile going grocery shopping. And, and when you order food online, you've eliminated the tactileness, meaning of touching it and smelling it and sniffing it. And, and, and so I argue that, uh, and I'm a huge, I believe hugely in online shopping, you know, electronics, anything, or I even buy movies or DVD, uh, you know, documentaries, uh, music documentaries, I, I, where I want the thing permanently. And uh, I buy those online, but I, I cannot imagine, other than unless, unless I was really, sh- I was shut in and I could not move, which is not most of us, I couldn't imagine going to grocery shopping online. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about all things Costco. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You know, I'm sure that you have seen, whether it's on late night cable TV or whatever, the services that will check your DNA, tell you how healthy you are or aren't, look at your family tree, all that sort of thing. And, of course, technology has literally put this in the hands of the consumer. Well, now some questions are being raised about whether those who were conceived through donated sperm can figure out who their biological fathers are via Ancestry Kits or some sort of company uh, that looks into this sort of thing, regardless of whether the biological father wants to know or not. Should this be allowed? What are the rules, especially in a world that's uh, always changing technologically. Cindy Wasser is with us, fertility lawyer, Hope Springs Fertility Law, and is with us now. Cindy, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. 
My pleasure. It's an important issue. And, and I can, I guess, one that's constantly changing, uh, the markers are changing. What are the rules now? What, what, what anonymity do we have if you're a sperm donor? How do things work in this country? Well, there are very few rules, Scott, and that's what's so interesting about the issue. Um, you know, sperm donation has been something as, as long as well as egg donation that we've been doing for many years in North America and many parts of uh, Europe. And there have been relatively few rules. And until recently, people haven't thought much about the consequences of making their babies this way. Personally, I think it's fantastic. And I have two children with the use of an egg donor. But there are a lot of things that we need to think about as parents and as lawyers. And this um, issue is, is one of the new ones. When people access social media and put themselves out there, they lose anonymity and privacy mm. in the new world. You don't own your post on Facebook or any social media for that matter, which is why you must be very careful about the pictures you post, particularly of children. So when someone decides to be a sperm donor and decides to do it anonymously, they rarely get legal advice. Um, they rarely think about the long-term consequences of creating children and half-siblings all over the world. And um, the people who have generally been managing it for them in the past have been the doctors who really haven't been addressing this issue. And so legally in Canada, Health Canada has simply said that there should be consent forms signed at clinics before people do this. And the consent forms ask whether the sperm donor consents to any information being given to the child at 18 in most cases. Although people who then purchase or use the sperm to create their families aren't getting legal advice either, and they're not thinking about whether they may want their children to have this information before they're 18. They're not thinking about whether they want more information. And two of the major consequences are that children grow up and start to become interested romantically with people. And in this day and age where sperm donors are creating hundreds of children, um, there are a whole host of people that are completely off limits for those children and they don't know who they are. So it's kind of scary to go out in the dating world and not know how many potential siblings you have out there. The other important information is getting relevant medical information in the future. When the sperm donor donates, he's healthy, he's tested, but all of us age and all of us get sick. And unfortunately, some people become very, very sick with genetic illnesses. So a sperm donor who may get prostate cancer, colon cancer, well, those are highly genetic. And the children need to know. Mm. And we're not getting that information for them. When I went through the process of making my own children, I was a criminal defense lawyer. So I thought a lot. And I thought about genetic illness. And I think it's really important that people consider getting legal advice and having contracts between them and the sperm donor, and you can do it anonymously through lawyers, that do guarantee that the donor thinks about the future and does say, I will disclose relevant medical information in the future. I will or will not be available 
for the child, you know, to meet, to learn about in the future, depending there, on what he feels. And the, those questions are never asked or answered during a sperm donation? I mean, do you just go in and, and make a donation and then go out the door? Or um, <laughs> is there some way, somewhere, something that you sign that says, hey, I'm doing this, but I want to remain anonymous? I mean, do we just assume or presume that that's the case? Or is there no anonymity when you are donating? Well, the medical consents that a clinic would have you sign would say that you would disclose uh, information, whether you will, at, at the, when the child is 18, and that you will disclose uh, genetic illness. But if you called around to every medical clinic that does this work, that obtains the sperm, I'm pretty sure you would never hear, oh, yes, sperm donors have called us and if you have told us that they've got cancer. We, right. we keep track of that. Never. And that's what I went through when I had my own daughter uh, or, and had an egg donor is I started realizing no one's going to give me this information. So I decided the best choice for me and the family I was creating was to make my donor known. Right. so that we are real to her and we will get that information. But doctors don't want to do it, and a lot of agencies don't want to do it for the small amount of money. One of the things we're pushing with Health Canada right now, and a group of us mainly organized by Canadian Fertility Consultants, the largest surrogacy agency in Canada, um, and Anthony Housefather, who's an M a member of Parliament from Mount Royal in Quebec, we've been organizing um, days on Parliament to speak to MPs and to get the attention of the Minister of Health to say so many of these issues need to be addressed in the modern world. The laws are antiquated and don't deal for these issues. And there was a legal case a few years ago out of British Columbia, a young woman named Olivia Patton, who 16 years old at the time, wanted to know who her sperm donor father was. And she succeeded at the Supreme Court, the lower level in BC, of getting a moratorium on all anonymous sperm donations, but nobody thought of the other aspect of this, which was the woman's right at the time that she chooses an anonymous sperm donor to have control over her reproductive rights. So it, that didn't come up until it reached the BC Court of Appeal, at which point they said, we cannot make laws for the unborn child. Mm. That opens the whole Morgenthaler issue right. of what is a fetus? And at the time you're choosing a sperm donor, you, of course, don't even have a fetus. Yeah. You don't have an embryo. You have a thought, and we cannot legislate for the thought. Um, so now so, if you are a donor in Canada and, and, and you donate your sperm, is there any anonymity, or do you just have to realize that someone can get a hold of you in the future? Well, I think with the the way the internet is developing, everybody has to understand that you don't have anonymity once you start using it. Right. Every time you're on Facebook, and you'll see also a lot of the uh, banks, embryo and sperm and egg donor agencies will have a photo online of the donor, so you can choose the profile and see the photo. And if you're getting those online, it's also very easy to scan your mouse over the photo and get 50 images of this person and trace them that way, never mind the DNA test. Right. So, and if, if a donor puts any significantly interesting information in the profile, 
it's so easy to find the link in that picture, you know, won the gold medal in, for skating in Canada or something. Boom, right? Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> linking someone who looks like somebody or, or, or what have you is a lot different from, from a DNA test. Would the donor yeah. have to have his DNA information on the, you know, Internet in order for that to do it? Would he have to? No. No, so, they're not getting. So how are they getting the information the from? How are they getting the? How are they getting the match from the male side? Who's it's, who's giving them uh, that information? They're finding little bits of information. So they do the DNA test. They get a little bit of background. Right. Then they're doing further searches on the internet. Mm. And in today's world, you know, any fourteen-year-old can find somebody in a matter of minutes. In the future, it'll be even faster. So if you're um, a sperm so donor, if you're if you're a sperm donor right now, you've got every reason to believe that some of your offspring are going to try to get a hold of you. There's a good reason to feel that way, but mm. you know, I think the better question is to start thinking about why anonymity matters and should we rethink and open the debate for a registry system right. that they have in the United States that is very costly to create and maintain, but to push Health Canada to do it so that you don't have the risk of this happening. You register as donor number 123, and then the parents say, we used donor 123. Someone else says, we used donor 123. And then you know there are siblings. You know, donor goes on there and says, I have cancer. Everybody's sorry. Everybody knows. And there's no mm. need to do that. And then the children, if and when they feel they need to contact, they can go on the registry and say, I'm the child of donor 123. Will you meet me and respect that? And if you have lawyers and draft contracts between the donor and the bank or the donor and the parents, if they're individually done, then you can put boundaries in there and say respect the privacy. Understanding the Internet may link you, but please let's respect the boundaries. And and teach the children to respect the boundaries, to explain to the children very early on in their life, how their creation was so special and they're so privileged that science and law allowed it, but to teach them to respect the boundaries as well. Uh, obviously, well, let me ask you this. Is, is, is the majority of these uh, searches for medical reasons? They want to know the medical history of their parents, uh, this sort of thing. Or is it, the, you know, the kid who, who grew up in a, in a, in a family, I mean, not adopted, but grew up in a family who, all, who just wants to know who their biological father is? I mean, those are two totally different reasons. Yes, and I think the majority is the curiosity of who is what my identity is. Yeah. Um, and then the medical reason is a huge one, but I actually I don't think most people think about that initially. When I speak to hundreds of clients a year doing donations, and I raise the issue of medical and consanguinity, or you know the dating issue, that that my clients always say, "Oh my gosh, didn't think about that." Mm. And that's huge. And, you know, you you never know what's going to happen in the future medically. Science just keeps developing so quickly. If our child is ill and they say to us, yeah. can you reach out yeah. to this person? No, you can certainly, My gosh, you can certainly you see the, yeah, you can certainly <laughs> see the reasons for and, and yeah. certainly for against. Um, what is the reason people use for donating? And are you worried that if this happens, they'll be less doing that? I think 
we're always afraid that whatever restriction we create will create um, a dearth of supply, and it never seems to pan out that way looking at various countries. Some European countries have rules about donation where it must be open. There must be all kinds of information available to the child, and that's based on some international legal requirements. Canada hasn't signed on to those treaties, so we don't. But I think a registry is is the best option for maintaining those boundaries of privacy and providing important information. And I don't think that that will lessen the supply. I think the fact that for sperm donors, um, there's very little um, monetary incentive to donate is the bigger problem for that. And we're also trying to push that the government will allow for some compensation to increase the supply because right now Canadians are going to the United States to get sperm donors. And because in Canada, in, in Canada, you can't sell it, correct? Whereas in the States, you, you can. Yeah, there's no purchasing. Right. So it, they can purchase from a, an American bank, which mm. is kind of ironic because that too should... is illegal under the current wording, but that's where it's coming from. And some of the medical regulations are different from ours. And so we're having these other scandals that you've heard about over the years where the donors have lied about their background and there's no follow-up and checking and you've got schizophrenic sperm donor and the parents weren't told and et cetera. Um, So we're also pushing the Minister of Health to look at these regulations right now. And it would be really great if the Minister of Health would agree to sit down and meet with us. And so far, we haven't been able to get that appointment. I'm looking forward for her to tell us we will. On December 6th, we met with approximately 40 members of Parliament to talk about compensation and and the legislation surrounding donation and surrogacy. And all of them expressed an interest in changing this and bringing it along to current Canadian values, which are not just tolerant, but accepting of all options. And so that's what I'd really like to see of this. And education for sperm donors. Why would people lawyers? Why would people donate sperm? If you, oh, if you can't, so many reasons. but if you can't, if you're not being paid for it, if you can't get get money for it as you can in the states, and you're you're opening yourself up to this intrusion because you're the father of offspring, uh, why do it? What's the ha- is it worth the hassle? What's the benefit? What's the upside to this? Well, we're an altruistic culture, aren't we? And I'm proud of that. So people want to help. Um, many people know somebody who's suffering with infertility. One out of every six Canadians does has an, have an infertile problem, an infertility problem, or you've got um, people who are gay and lesbian and they need that. Um, so there are people who've had cancer, there's medical illnesses. Do those type so of people... people know somebody, so they want to help. Do those people often get donations from friends or would they go to a bank? Both. Yeah. Both. Um, you know, we we see there's issues on both of those cases, I guess. Yeah, you be to community where they'll have a friend, um, you know, Uncle Mark, the sperm donor, who will also be involved in the child's life in in many cases or not. And then, but we see a, a, a huge amount of people who, for medical reasons, need a sperm donor, and they will go to a bank. Um, so there are a number of reasons for doing it. But I think sperm donors are remarkable, like egg donors, and, you know, deserve to be treated with a little bit more respect for the time and the inconvenience of doing it. 
And they should get legal advice. And I think the contracts are the best way to protect everyone because we can't legislate for the unborn child. That's just not going to happen. Um, are there any places in the world that are doing this right? Uh, you said the United States, obviously, different rules and regulations than we have. As a result, they're paying for it. And, and most of the stuff from Canada or that goes on in Canada comes from the United States. So are, are there countries out there that are more advanced in doing this right? Well, there's different things that the countries do in, in different ways. I don't think anyone has it really perfect, but we can always strive to be better. And I, when I say they get payment in the U.S., it's not a whole lot. The average sperm donor in, in America gets about 100 or $200. Um, so it's not a whole lot. But I can see that being the draw as opposed to, you know, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to do this anyway. So why don't I give it to somebody? I mean, it just seems them are university college yeah. students. Right. So um, there's certainly less involved in a sperm donation than an egg donation, which requires injections and, and yeah. hormone therapy. You don't do that with a sperm donation. Um, it can be a lot more fun. So, you know, they don't get a lot more, but still they deserve something for their time. But I think the real issue is the lack of understanding the future, the consequences of what you're doing. And especially when you're a university student, just think back to being that age. Could you imagine? And and one day becoming a father yourself and wondering about your children, whether they want to know who their half-siblings are. That changes things. And if you're if it's not brought to your attention, if you're not getting enough time to think about it, not thinking about the legal consequences, then there are issues. So you've got European nations that legislate that everything has to be open. There has to be a lot of information available. You've got America where there's registry. I mean, you could create a system that could really be the role model. And Canada, you know, Canada should be that place where we do it right because that's just who we are, especially this government. This government wants to do everything right, so let's do it. And I know the minister's help busy with a number of other issues, but let's put this on the agenda for the next big thing to do. Cindy Wasser has been with us, fertility lawyer, Hope Springs Fertility Law, talking about the questions being raised now that you can go online and trace your own DNA. Cindy, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Anytime. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.